reading comes from Psalm 17. And, and here, just a little explanation. This is a, a difficult passage, and so I've chose to put my own translation here. Uh, but I should say that a, uh, a certain congregant who asked to remain anonymous came up to me and pointed out that I had missed a clause in my translation. So I'll just highlight to you in verse 4, I'm going to add in by the words of your lips when I read it, because I, I missed a clause in my own translation. So the Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 17. A prayer of David. Lord, Hear my just cause. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, free from deceitful lips. From before you, my vindication will come forth. Your eyes see rightly. If you should test my heart, if you should visit me by night, if you should try me, you would not find me scheming. My mouth will not transgress to the deeds of humanity. By the words of your lips, I have carefully avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have stuck to your roads. My feet have not stumbled. I have called upon you, for you will answer, O God. Turn your ear to me and hear my word. Wonderfully display your kindness, O Savior of those who seek refuge, from those who raise themselves up at your right hand. Guard me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from before the wicked who would destroy me. My enemies surround me ravenously. Their fat is closed up. Their mouths speak arrogantly. Now they have surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to push down to the ground. He is like a lion longing to tear like a young lion lying hidden. Arise, O Lord, confront his face, subdue him. Rescue me from the wicked with your sword, from men with your arm, O Lord, from men. Their portion in life is more than a lifetime. You fill their bellies from your treasure store. They are satiated with sons, and they leave their excess to their children. But I, vindicated, will see your face. In awakening, I will be satiated with your form. This is the word of the Lord. In his book, Being and Nothingness, Jean-Paul Sartre tells the story about going to a cafe to visit with his friend Pierre, only to discover when he shows up at the cafe that Pierre is not there. I'm sure you've had that sort of missed appointment happen to you, although it may never have occurred to you to make it the foundation of a metaphysics, uh, Sartre highlights this story in order to analyze what it is like to experience someone's absence. Maybe you've experienced someone's absence, perhaps a loved one who was gone or on a trip. Uh, maybe you've tried to make up for that absence through texts and phone calls, uh, but have you noticed that there's just something about seeing somebody face to face? Uh, you know, uh, there's something about the visible, tangible presence of someone you love. Well, as we'll see in this psalm, David is feeling God's absence, and what he wants is precisely that, a visible revelation of God. David wants to see God. As we've been going through Psalms 9 through 18, I've been saying that these psalms are all connected. 
Psalms 9 through 10 lay out this fundamental problem of God's absence. And uh, also how the wicked take God's absence, right? The wicked says in his heart there is no God, and that's his excuse for oppressing the poor. He doesn't think God's going to show up. Uh, Psalms, 9, Psalms uh, 9 through 18 also focus us on the hearts. What's going on inside your heart as you respond to God's absence, both the wicked on the one hand and David on the other? Well, in Psalm 18, which we'll get to next week, next month, God is actually going to show up. The Theophany Psalm, where we have this visible appearance of God. But we're not quite there yet, and in this last psalm, before we get there, we're going to find David asking God for just this sort of appearance. This psalm focuses us on David's desire to see God, and it also focuses us on the fact that God is able to see David's heart. So, uh, in this sermon, we're going to have three points. First, we're going to see that David asks to see God. That's his request. Uh, Secondly, we're going to see that David has the confidence he has because God sees David's heart. So while David's waiting to see God, he also knows that God can see his heart right now. And then finally, we're going to connect it to Jesus and see how in Jesus we see God even more truly than David did. So we're going to see that David is asking to see God. We're going to look at the fact that God can see David's heart, and then we're going to connect it to Jesus. All right, so the first point, David asks to see God. Well, actually, his first request is that God hear him. That's where he starts. Verse 1, he asks, Lord, hear my just cause. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, free from deceitful lips. And again, in verse 6, turn your ear to me and hear my words. But David doesn't just want God to hear what he has to say. He also wants God to answer him. Verse 6, I have called upon you, for you will answer, O God. And what's, what's the answer that David's looking for? Well, it's for God himself to appear and uphold David's just cause. God's hearing is to lead to God's action, to God descending from his heavenly throne and making his presence known. Look at verse 2. From before you, my vindication will come forth. Verse 7, wonderfully display your kindness, O Savior of those who seek refuge from those who raise themselves up at your right hand. Verse 13, arise, O Lord, confront his face, subdue him, rescue me from the wicked with your sword. David wants God to act wonderfully, which means miraculously to oppose and defeat the violent wicked who attack David. David wants God to cover over and protect and defend him. Look at verse 8. Guard me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Do you see how closely and intimately David wants God to guard him? How closely do you guard the pupil of your eye? Children, if I came up to you and I tried to poke you in the eye, would you try to stop me? I think so. You know, we don't don't really like being poked in the eye. Every now and then someone recommends to me that I should try contact lenses. You know, maybe if you have glasses, people have recommended it to you, but it just seems so crazy to me. You mean I've got to take this thing and, like, stick it in my eye? Overcome that natural human urge to not stick things in your eye? It's a basic reflex. 
That's how close David wants to be to God and how jealously he wants God to protect him. He wants to be tucked under God's wing. Just like the mother bird on the nest with all her little chicks nestled up to her, David wants God to settle down over him, to cover him, and keep him out of any danger. Well, all through these psalms, we've seen how David has dealt with the absence of God by persevering in his trust in God. But now it seems like we're getting close to the breaking point. David is saying, Lord, this absence has gone on so long. I need you to show up. I need you to be here, to be with me, sheltering me and protecting me. And and this plea culminates in verse 15. But I, vindicated, will see your face. In awakening, I will be satiated with your form. David is asking for God's visible presence. Like Moses on Mount Sinai, he asks to see God's glory. In fact, this is a theme in the psalm in a way that's a little tricky to bring out in English because the word in verse uh, 2 for from before you, and then in verse 9 from before the wicked, and in verse 14 from men, in Hebrew, includes the word for face. So literally, from, from, from the face of. So this theme of God's face and the face of the wicked is laced through this whole psalm. Uh, David wants to see God's face. And then there's this mention of awakening. I'll just say it's a little ambiguous. Who is waking up in the Hebrew? Is it David who's going to wake up and see God? Or is it perhaps God? Uh, We know God doesn't sleep, right? And yet sometimes the psalmist feels like God's asleep and has to cry out for God to wake up. That happens in Psalm 7-6. That might be what, what, what is intended here. Either way, what David wants is for God to appear. For David, his vindication, his being publicly declared just, is inextricably linked with God showing up visibly. And this is a pattern in Israel's history. When God shows up to deliver his people, he does so visibly, almost always. I mean, it was precisely when Israel, and it's precisely when Israel's in the worst trouble, when they most need God's deliverance, that God, they needed God to show up most tangibly. Think about when Israel is trapped by the chariots of Pharaoh against the Red Sea, and God's glory appears in cloud and fire. Or think about when Israel stands at a crossroads, at the death of King Uzziah, headed uh, out of a good king and into a bad king. Isaiah has, it's then that Isaiah has this image of God lifted up and seated on the throne in the temple. And when Israel's at their lowest point in exile, that's when Ezekiel and Daniel have some of the most vivid visions of God in the entire Old Testament. And so David, in the midst of his trials, with a keen sense of God's absence, asks to see God. David will be satiated with God's form. Seeing God's form is what will truly satisfy him. It's what will truly fulfill his desires. And how different this is from the wicked, uh, as we see in verse 14. Now, to be perfectly honest, verse 14 is a very difficult verse. Um, I've done my best to translate it. Your Bibles may say something different. As I said, it's a very difficult verse. But however you work out some of the difficulties, I think the main point is clear. 
David is seeing these wicked people, and they're blessed with earthly possessions. They have long life. They have plenty to eat. They're satisfied with many children to whom they can leave their wealth after their unusually long lives ends. It's part of the tension in all of these psalms that the righteous are suffering while the wicked seem to be doing fine. Uh, if you can think back all the way to Psalm 10:5, his ways prosper at all times, your judgments are on high out of his sight. It's part of what makes God feel so absent, that it feels like there's no punishment for the wicked. They're doing just fine. But this situation also serves to highlight a contrast. The wicked are satisfied with their earthly wealth. That's all they need. They're living the good life now. They don't need God or a relationship with God. Um, But while the wicked are satisfied with sons over here, David is going to be satisfied with seeing God's form. David doesn't just want to use God to get deliverance and wealth and prosperity. No, he wants God as an end in himself. More than anything else, David wants to see God. Now, maybe this raises a tension in your mind. I'd like to address at this point. Should, should David want to see God's form? Uh, isn't, it, isn't it a big point in the Old Testament? You know, you have all these pagan religions with their idols, and they're all two human gods, but the Old Testament teaches that God is invisible. Um, God doesn't have a body, so he doesn't have a form. If you look at Deuteronomy 4, what is the reason for the command not to make idols? Well, it's that when God spoke to Israel on Mount Sinai, Israel saw no form. Just, just to heighten the tension as much as possible, this is the same word for form that we have here in verse 15, when David asked to see God's form. So we have Deuteronomy saying, don't try to draw a picture of God because you can't see his form. And then we have David asking to see God's form. What gives? Well, while it's true that Scripture teaches that God is invisible and has no body or visible form, nevertheless, we do also have these stories about God appearing. He appears to Abraham, looking like a regular man. Ezekiel sees a human-like figure on a throne. At the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit appears like a dove. But because of what Scripture says elsewhere, we cannot really conclude that God is revealed in these forms as he really and truly is. It's, it's kind of like communion. Just as God reveals himself in communion through the bread and the wine, although the bread and the wine are not God, so God stoops down to our weakness, manifesting himself through physical phenomena so that we can know his presence visibly, despite the fact that God's presence is usually invisible. And it's okay for humans to need to see God. It was already there in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it, where God came and walked with the man and the woman. Uh, And as we'll see later, it will still be there in the new heavens and the new earth as well. Uh, If you want a longer explanation, I'd be happy to talk talk with you about this at more length. But that's what David needs. He knows his weakness, and he feels abandoned by God, and he wants to be reassured of God's presence by a visible revelation of God's commitment. What about you tonight? What are you satisfied with? What do you desire? If you're like me, isn't it often far too little? I mean, maybe the lot of the wicked in verse 14 sounds pretty good to you, 
long life, lots of possessions, an abundance of children. Do you want anything more than that? I'm not saying you shouldn't want those things. Those are good things. But we shouldn't be completely satisfied with them. We were created for more. We were created to behold God's glory, to have a personal, face-to-face relationship with God. That's how it was in the Garden of Eden, but it's something we have lost, as Mike was talking about this morning. Um, And perhaps you know what it's like to seek satisfaction elsewhere, in food, in sex, in a romantic relationship, or in a close friendship, in the honor of a successful career, uh, or maybe by searching for transcendent meaning in science or great art or philosophy. Have you also known the hollowness that comes along with that? Uh, How all of these things fall short of being God. How they all pale in comparison to the brightest of all lights, the purest of all loves. It's like Augustine discovered in his own path to faith. He prays to God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So let me ask you again, are you longing to see God tonight? Do you want this the way David wants it? Do you know that you are miss- what you are missing out on if you just chase created things? Oh, that the Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts tonight to long for what David longs for, to see God. So that's the first point. David asks to see God. Now, the second part. David asks in confidence because God sees David's hearts. In verse 2, David says, From before you my vindication will come forth, your eyes see rightly. So God can see what's going on. Even though he seems absent, he sees what's happening. We see this confidence throughout the psalm, don't we? Verse 6, for you will answer, O Lord. Verse 15, but I, vindicated, will see your face. In awakening, I will be satiated with your form. And where does David's confidence come from? Well, he says it is because his heart is pure. Look at verse 3. If you should test my heart, If you should visit me by night, if you should try me, you would not find me scheming. My mouth will not transgress to the deeds of humanity. By the words of your lips, I have carefully avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have stuck to your roads. My feet have not stumbled. David knows that God looks on the hearts. And so he expresses a confidence that if God tests, and examines his heart, he will find that David's thoughts and motives are pure. I wonder what you think about at night, when the hectic bustle of the day has died down, uh, what would a transcript of where your thoughts wander look like? Uh, I, I wouldn't want mine published. David, though, is confident that if God sees his inner thoughts, he won't find him scheming about how to get ahead by underhanded means. David's words are not words of deceit. He has carefully followed the path marked out by God's law. Now, we have to remember that these claims of righteousness in the Psalms, we find a lot of them, don't we, um, when we that are not claims to sinless perfection. Uh, we know that because of all the other times when we find David asking for forgiveness for sin. Sometimes in the very same Psalm, where he 
proclaims uh, his righteousness. So what's going on here? Well, David is claiming that in the trial that he is in, he is in the right. He's not claiming to be perfectly just in every area of his life, but he's claiming that his cause is just. That if God examines his heart, he won't find evidence to the contrary. David is pleading his case before God in honesty and sincerity. So it doesn't mean that David is perfect, but it means that he's in the right in his case. Nevertheless, this plea does reflect a certain purity of heart that is necessary if David is going to come into God's presence. We learned in Psalm 15 that a truthful heart is necessary to enter God's sanctuary. David is a different kind of person than the wicked ones who assault him. He is someone who is endeavoring to live a life that is faithful to God's commands. The wicked, however, are quite different. In verses 9 through 12, they are described as violent, wild animals, predators who seek to surround and devour David and his companions. And their problem is a heart problem, too. Verse 10 says, their fat is closed up. Uh, One of these hard images to translate, but it seems to be the idea that the fat in the rib cage has closed up and hardened their hearts like a kind of spiritual um, arteriosclerosis, if you will. They become dull and insensitive to any human compassion for the poor and the suffering. And that's how they're able to devour other human beings with no shred of remorse. And this hard heart is expressed in arrogant speech. Their hardened hearts have led them to boast about their power. Uh, Because they neither fear God nor men, as we've seen in Psalms 9 and 14, and because they say in their hearts there is no God, they think they can get away with as much oppression as they want. And as I mentioned in the last point, we learn in verse 14 that the wicked have become insensitive to any spiritual good. They do not hunger and thirst for God. All they care about is their own wealth, prosperity, and family legacy. So let me ask you, what's, what's the state of your heart tonight? Is it ready to meet God? Or is it shut up with fat, hardened, and insensitive? If you've caught any of David's desire to see God, then this psalm is also a call to you to be about the business of purifying your hearts. Now, now let me be clear. This is not a matter of earning the vision of God. We've already mentioned that David is a sinner, just like all of the rest of us. Uh, The only reason we can receive the vision of God is because of God's free gift of himself in Jesus because of Jesus' finished work on the cross and the free justification and forgiveness that we receive by faith. Your relationship with God is not based on your works or what you have done, but entirely on what Jesus has done. But does that mean that there is no room for a call to holiness? Well, the New Testament doesn't seem to think so. We learn in, Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 8, "Blessed Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And in Hebrews 12:14 we read, "Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." So according to the author of Hebrews, if we want to see God, then we should strive for a holiness that makes this possible. Now again, this is not a workspace striving, and it's not a perfect striving either because believers still fall into sin and really do have to struggle with sin while they're alive. It also doesn't mean that our success in that struggle is entirely up to us, because we know that behind 
what we can see, God is at work uh, to keep and preserve us. So this doesn't mean, for instance, that believers can lose their salvation. But what this is, is a calling that is given to us as believers to press on towards the goal of seeing God by endeavoring more and more to live in the new selves that God is creating in us. It's kind of like a child growing up. You know, uh, as you grow up, at some point you learn about big kid stuff. You know, big kid stuff? Um, So you learn that big kids dress themselves. And you want to dress yourself. You learn that big kids use a regular cup instead of a cup with a lid, and you want to drink from a proper open cup, too. And what's your motivation for this? Well, it's that you see the glory of what it is to be a big kid, and you want to be like that. That's how the vision of God works, to motivate our striving for holiness. It's not that we need to make ourselves holy to earn God's favor or to keep God's favor, It has already been given to us gratuitously freely in Christ. But it's that as we come to long for the glory of God, we long to be like him. And as we come to learn that the things we used to love so much, our sin is evil and ugly, we come to desire holiness in a new way. And just like Israel, we are called to prepare ourselves Just as Israel is called to prepare themselves to meet God at Mount Sinai, we are called to strive for purity of heart so that we are made ready for that day. Let me ask you this evening, how is your heart? Where do you need that purity? What sins in your life do you need to kill? Do you, like the wicked in this psalm, have an idolatry of life and health? Are you just trying to make this life last as long as it can? Or maybe you have an idolatry of possessions. If I can just get a full enough bank account, a great house, a great car, great clothes, then I'll have really made it. Or maybe do you have an idolatry of family and children? Did you know family and children could be an idolatry? I sometimes think that in the church, maybe we we emphasize it so much that it's a special temptation for us. And it's not actually good for your children, by the way, for them to be your idolatry. So are you looking to find your meaning in life entirely from your role as father or mother rather than from your identity as God's children? Also, how are you treating other people? It's striking that the lack of care David's enemies show for God exhibits itself as a lack of concern for the oppression and suffering of other people. Just a reminder that the love of God and the love of our neighbor go hand in hand. They're inextricably linked. So how are you treating those around you? Do you have a heart that is soft and receptive for the suffering of others? Or do you close your heart to other people, afraid of what it might cost you to love them? This psalm is a call to us tonight to strive for holiness. It's a call to examine our hearts confess the sin we find there to God, and turn from it to repentance. So, we've seen that David longs to see God, and he has the confidence that when God appears, he will be vindicated because God can see his heart. But we can't stop there this evening, because we have a much fuller, visible representation of who God is in Jesus Christ, don't we? So point three, 
Now that Jesus has come, how does that change how we think about seeing God? Well, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then a little later on in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. So Jesus makes God visible. So even though, as we'll see next month, David does receive a vision of God in Psalm 18, there's still a greater vision waiting. And Jesus Christ is that vision of God. But if God is invisible, then how does Jesus make him visible? Not, not by ceasing to be God, but by taking to himself a visible human nature. Jesus' flesh is the visible revelation of who God is. But notice what a humble revelation this is. In his first coming, Jesus mostly masks his glory. From the stories about Jesus, you might be surprised to find out that he's the ultimate vision of God. Uh, how can this simple carpenter be a greater vision of God than the mountain shaking with fire and smoke as Israel receives the law, or the fire and lightning chariot that Ezekiel sees? And this vision seems to end in the ignominy of a death on the cross. This is not what we expect it to look like when God shows up, is it? Would any of us, without the benefit of hindsight, have looked at the cross and said, God is here? And yet the eyes of faith do see God revealed in Jesus. The centurion who saw Jesus' passion says, Surely this was the Son of God. But there's something different about this revelation of God from the fire and smoke of the Old Testament. It's a humble revelation, and it requires God to open the eyes of our hearts through faith if we're to see God in Jesus. But there is one moment in the Gospels where the mask slips and Jesus' true glory shines through. When Jesus ascends onto the mount with only his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and uh, Matthew tells us he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And a little later on, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is just a little foretaste of the vision of Jesus that John sees in Revelation. That Jesus who will come again with unveiled glory this time, clothed in majesty and power to finally defeat death and hell and put an end to all injustice. But we're not there yet. And that means that the Christian life is often analogous to David waiting to see God. Jesus is no longer with us. We can't see him anymore. He's in heaven. He is present with us by his Spirit, but... That's an invisible presence. And yet, we long to be with him. And we look forward with eager anticipation to the day when he will appear to bring perfect justice to the world. Revelation 21:23 tells us that in the New Jerusalem, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The ultimate vision of God's glory towards 
which we look is the radiance of God's glory which shines through Jesus as the lamp that emits that glory. But now is the time of faith. And as Jesus himself says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Like David, we're still waiting. We are called to a perseverance, to a holy waiting for this final revelation of Christ. And we're called to purify our hearts to prepare for this vision. But as we do this, we're left with this vision of Christ as we see him by faith in the scriptures. We have more than David ever had, even in his greatest vision. By faith we see Christ, the image of God, coming to a world in his, to this world in his great love and living a perfect life as the revelation of God's perfection. We see Christ dying on the cross as a revelation of God's forgiving love. We don't have to depend on our purifying activities to make our relationship with God secure because we see Christ risen from the dead as God's public sign that we have been declared righteous in him. And we have Christ depicted for us in the communion elements on this table. Uh, Again, this might seem less exciting than Mount Sinai or the heavenly chariot. This is just ordinary bread and wine. There's no magic here. Half of you even have the recipe. And yet, when we look on these elements by faith, as the Spirit opens our eyes to see, we have here a visible picture of who God is in Christ. The God who loves us so much that he feeds us by his own Son. The God who has dealt with our sin in a final way on the cross. So let me close by asking you this evening, do you see Christ? Have you learned something of his glory, something of his love, something of his righteousness, something of his mercy? And do you long to meet him again and see him come in glory and triumph? This is how we are called into the battle against sin, this war to purify our hearts. It is by looking behind us to the revelation of Christ on the cross as foolish as that might be to the world, and by pressing forwards before, toward the finish line of the heavenly vision of Christ in his glory. Only Christ, in all of his glory, can truly satisfy us. Only he can bring us the revelation of God we so desperately need. And because of his finished work, this appearance of Christ is a certain promise for us. So we can say even more truly than David... But I, vindicated, will see your face. In awakening, I will be satiated with your form. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of yourself you have given us in your perfect image, Jesus Christ. We thank you for opening our eyes to see the glory of who you are in him. Be with us this week, as we go out into the world, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And help us to strive to purify our hearts, remembering all the time that our final salvation depends on you and the work that you're doing by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.